Hi, my name is Seth Benjamin, and I am the creative and worship director for Covenant Church. I wanted to personally thank you for being a part of our sermons online and podcast audience. At the beginning of this year, we had the opportunity to launch our brand new website and home on the web at covenantchurch.us. There, you can find out more about our church, like where we came from and where we're going. You can invest directly into life change through our online giving. You can listen to and share some of our recent sermons and even get connected to us through social media. So whether you're part of our online audience or someone who attends our weekend worship experiences, I wanted to encourage you to connect with us at covenantchurch.us and say thank you for being a part of this movement. You're listening to a recent sermon from a Covenant Church worship experience. For more information, you can find us online at covenantchurch.us. Most people live in a boring washing machine cycle of life. Wash, rinse, repeat. But what if you were called to more? This message is from part one of our series, Do Great Things, where we are learning that as followers of Christ, God has called us to not only believe in the impossible, but to also do great things. And now, here is our lead pastor, Travis Davenport. We're in week one of our new series that we're calling Do Great Things. And as followers of Jesus Christ, I think that we long to do great things. Amen? Um, we desire to, to move in greater anointing. We, we desire to rise to, to new levels in faith, to experience victory after victory. As Scripture would say, move from glory to glory to glory. Amen? As a church... We expect to see God move in our lives. We should expect to see miracles in our midst. We should expect to see revival take place. Let me ask you, are you living in anticipation and expectation of God doing great things? Are you? Are you? We should be as a church. Of course we are. This is why we, we, we recite verses like Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 with such passion and zeal, right? We say it like this. I can do... All things. That wasn't very much passion or zeal, but uh, I'll give it to you. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We love that verse. Verses like Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. These are good verses. We like these verses. We quote these verses. We, we get behind these and we stand firm on these verses, or even our core verse for this entire series, Daniel eleven thirty two. 32. It says, the people who know their God shall be, what's that word? Strong. Shall be strong and do great exploits or carry out great exploits. Other words, do great things. We believe these things. We love to quote these things. We love to stand up and shout these things and lift up our hands and worship. We read books that tell us that we are more than conquerors. We study devotionals that tell us how to become victorious and how to live free as Christians. We listen to pastors who, who get us revved up and get us excited about our destiny to rule and to reign with Jesus Christ as co-heirs of his throne. Are, are you following me? Yes? We get excited about these things. And we leave church pumped and jacked and then life happens and then a situation happens 
And then a circumstance happens, and we get hit, and it takes us down. But because we took the wise counsel of our pastor, and we properly surrounded ourselves with a wolf pack, right? That means that we, we have people who have surrounded us, godly men and women who help us back up. They speak life over us. They speak life into us. They say, you can do it. You're better than this. You got this. God's on your side. You're more than a conqueror. And they help you back up. Does this sound familiar? So we get back up. We try. We go for it again. But then we hit the same pattern all over. We get excited. We fill our, our minds with books and, and even scripture and, and devotionals and, and sermons that get us pumped up and jacked. But then we walk into the world and we get hit. And we get hurt. And we fall. And it may not even be from something that we've done. It may not be a sin. It may not be something we're struggling with. It may just be something that we're suffering through. Now, after this happens a couple times, one of two thoughts begins to emerge. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, I've failed God. Number one, I've failed God. That's the first thought. Or the second thought, God failed me. God has failed me. After we go through all these motions and all these things and we're trying hard and, and I'm, more than a, I'm more than a conqueror and, and I can do this and I can do all things in the name of Jesus Christ and then I fall, one of two thoughts emerges. I failed God or God has failed me. Number one, I failed God. We think this, don't we? You with me? Well, I, I, I must have failed God. That, that, that must be why God is punishing me. Because, because I can't get it right. Because I can't do it right. Because I, I keep messing it up. I've, I've failed God, and so God is punishing me. This is why I'm suffering. So what do we do? We seek to try harder. We, we work harder. We try to be better, do better. We read more. We pray more. We give more. All with the mindset that maybe if I do these things better, I can be victorious. Maybe then God won't be mad at me. Maybe then he'll stop punishing me. Maybe then I'll stop suffering. And maybe then, maybe then, I can actually do great things. But hard times come again. And inevitably, no matter where you stand on the spectrum, you always end up at the second statement. God has failed me. Let me ask you this, church. How many Christians, quote, Christians or people do you know that would actually verbalize this sentiment? They would actually say, God has failed me. Have you heard this before? You can raise your hand. Has anybody heard this before? God has failed me. Yeah, many of us. I know many, many people. And they say it like this. Oh, yeah, Travis. I, I, went, I used to go to church. I went to church. I served. I, I gave money. I did this. I did that. I even worked with the babies. So, which, by the way, some of y'all, I don't know what you're feeding your kids, but it smells really bad coming out. I'm serious. I've smelled them before, and they don't all smell that way, but some of y'all, you just, I don't know if you're feeding them garbage or what it is, but it's bad. Like, it's bad, bad. I don't know what it is. But you have people who are like, I even worked with the babies. I even changed diapers. And yet God still let this happen to me. God still gave my wife cancer. God still took our son away from us when he was a baby. 
God still let me lose my job. God still let my husband walk out on me. God failed me. God failed me. Not a way to do with God. He failed me. He failed me. We become bitter. We become resentful towards the things of God and even the people of God. Does it sound like anybody you know? Does it sound like a father you know? Or a mother, a friend, a coworker? Does it sound like you? To those of us who would say, God failed us, I would say this. No, my friend. God never failed you. You've only failed to understand what it truly means to know God. You've only ever misunderstood what it means to truly know God. Look at Daniel 11.32. Let's investigate this verse one more time. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. See, far too many people read this verse or verses like this, and they'll, they'll read it, but they'll hear it like this. If I'm a Christian, I'm going to do great things. If I'm a Christian, I'm going to do great things. And to be honest with you, we interpret it this way because this is what we hear on the radio, on Christian radio. This is what we read in Christian books. I mean, am I right? This is even what we hear in a preach from a lot of our pulpits today. If you're a Christian, you're going to do great things. You're an overcomer. You can do it. You've got a great life ahead of you. Imagine and dream of the life that God has for, you know. We read things like this, and we hear people talk about this. We hear Christian pastors with large congregations, and they're on TV, so they must be biblically accurate, right? Say things like this. If you are a Christian, then you are to be wealthy with good relationships, living in victory, without pain, without stress or anxiety. This is what it means to walk with God. This is what it means to be a mature Christian. This is what it means to be in the will of God. Here's the problem, church. If the maturity of a Christian and being in God's will is marked by being wealthy, having good relationships, living in victory, without pain and anxiety, then what you've done is build a theology that excludes the one person that Christianity is built upon, Jesus. Now think about that. You've excluded the one person in your personal theology that Christianity is supposed to be built upon, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. If God's will for all Christians is that they would prosper, that they would be wealthy and have more than enough to pay their bills, what's that say about Jesus? Was Jesus born into a, a rich family or a poor family? Poor. Jesus took up his father's trade and worked in a relative obscurity until he was 30 years of age when he began his ministry. And then Jesus became homeless, broke, oftentimes hungry, the modern-day equivalent of a college junior, right? 
Literally, down to the sandals and everything. Like, everything, right? Bumming from his parents. And when it came time to pay Jesus' taxes, guess what? He didn't have the money. He, he literally had to pull what I would say a God move. Like, we can't do what he did. Like, he told P- Peter's like, hey, man, the taxes are coming up. Jesus is like, uh, yeah. Hey, go down and catch a fish, and in the fish's mouth is going to be some money. They're like, what? And they go down and catch a fish, and like, oh, here's some money. I'll go pay the taxes. <laughs> kind of unfair, Jesus. I'm just going to put that out there. I can't do that, right? <laughs> How about the issue of relationships? God doesn't want you to have any strained relationships. No strained relationships at all. But Jesus? Maybe any strained relationships? Well, let's see. His family disowned him. His friends abandoned him. Judas betrayed him. And his very own people screamed, crucify him. How about this issue of pain? God doesn't want you to have pain. You shouldn't have pain. If you're living in pain, there's sin in your life. Jesus ever suffer any physical pain? Jesus was beaten. Scripture tells us that at the end of his beating, he was unrecognizable as a man. They pulled out his beard, which to a Jewish man was was very disrespectful, to say the least, and painful. They put a crown of thorns on his head and pushed it down into his brow. They nailed him to a torture device called a cross, where he struggled to breathe until he died. It's interesting. You know what that sounds like to me? Pain. Excruciating, agonizing, physical pain. Let's keep going. How about this other issue of victory? You're to live in victory. You're never to be a victim. God's will is that you are never victimized. God doesn't want you to be a victim, but to be a victor. Was Jesus ever victimized? Many of you have been victimized. You've been raped, abandoned, beaten, molested, abused. Many of you have been neglected, hated, despised, and betrayed. You ever been a victim? Jesus was. False accusations, false witnesses, false trial, false condemnation, false execution. That's a victim. (laughs) What about this issue of worry and despair? If you really know God, if you really love God, if you're really at the center of God's will, you will never be stressed. You will never know worry. You should never have anxiety. Did Jesus? Remember the night before Jesus died? Remember that he was so stressed out that he could not even sleep? And the Bible talks about the, the anxiousness inside of his heart, that it was so great and so intense that he literally sweated drops of blood asking God the Father to remove this this cup from him the next day. Sounds like anxiety. Unbelievable anxiety. Now, don't misinterpret what I'm saying here, church. I'm not saying wealth is bad. I'm not. Not at all. The Bible is filled with amazing principles that teach us how to handle our money, how to increase it. Fantastic. I'm not saying that Scripture wants you to have bad relationships or walk in failure or be obese either, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying this. When we build an entire theology that is based on the fact that knowing God always produces a rich, problem-free, anxiety-free, safe, happy life, 
then we're building a theology into people that is going to lead them to the inevitable place where they say, God failed me. That's what happens. Now, this sounds great if you want to build a church of attenders. We're all happy. We're all, we're all giddy. God wants you happy. God wants you blessed. God wants you this and this and this, right? And people are like, oh, sign me up for that, man. Yeah. Hey, did you know if you come to God, your 401K just magically just grows. Would you like to come to our church? Yes, I would. Thank you very much. <laughs> That'll preach, man. I'm just telling you. It ain't true, but it'll preach. And that's how you grow a church of attenders. But like I said last week, Jesus isn't interested in building a church filled with people who simply attend it. Jesus is interested in exploding churches with people who want to know him. Are you with me, church? Jesus is in the business of building churches filled with people who want to know him. It just seems too often that people are in the business of building churches, people who want to attend them. Great disparity between the two. And if you want to do, if you want to do great things, if you want to be strong, you must first understand what it means to know God. And this is what it means to know God. Write this down, number one. What it means to know God. You share in God's love. <clears throat> you share in God's love. First John 4.10 says this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Basically, by the way, this word propitiation, it means the turning away of wrath by an offering. So God sends Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is a propitiation. He's our, he's our replacement. He's our substitutionary atonement. He pays for our sin. But he also appeases God, the wrath of God, by stepping into our place. He's this gift. To know God, we must first accept Jesus as the payment for our sins, as the propitiation for our sins. And we must demonstrate this love to others. This is what it means to share in God's love. That's what it means to know God. Number two, you share in God's grace. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given, given according to the measure of Christ's gift. To know God, we must accept his grace. And we must demonstrate this grace to others. This is what it means to know God. This is what it means to share in God's grace. All right, all good so far, right? This is all good so far. Oh, yeah, love, grace. Man, I'm all good, man. This is good. I knew that about God. God's all love. God's filled with grace. We're leading 2014 with grace. We're leading with grace. Yeah, right? It's good stuff. Yeah, let's go, right? Then comes this verse. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Yeah, by the way, you ever been there before? Like, what is going on, right? And people are like, when it rains, it pours, brother. That does not help me, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't believe, you know, the other day we are at our house, and I uh, got three kids puking upstairs. My wife's laying on the couch. She's just can't even move. You know, she's just laying there. 
and and I'm trying to yell and talk. I don't even I can't even talk, right? And Vanessa just looks over at me and she's like, What's gonna happen awful next? You know what I mean? And I'm like, cause cause we know like when it rains, it pours. We're just expecting like some part of our house just to like implode for no reason. It's just it's just gonna happen. It's just a car's gonna get, you know, whatever. I don't know. You have people that like they think that helps you, right? They'll call you and be like, Hey, I'm praying for you. I know when it rains, it pours. You know what I mean? And what Peter is saying here is like, don't be surprised. Don't, don't be like, this is strange. What is happening to me? He says this, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And this is the good stuff right here. Listen to this, listen to this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, what's interesting about that is we hear people say, you're blessed, you're blessed. How you doing? I'm blessed, brother. How you doing? I'm blessed. How you doing? Be blessed. Go be blessed, right? I, like, don't, don't do that to me. If that's what it means to be blessed, like, hey, go be blessed. Don't put that on me. Don't like, I'm going to have to go suffer right now. Like, don't put, no, no. Like, like, I'll bring that around someday, but not right now, bro. Like, I don't want that right now, right? Hey, how you doing? I'm blessed. Oh, you're suffering? No, I'm good, right? You ever talk to somebody who's always blessed, by the way? You know those people? How you doing, man? They, like, like literally had parts of their body amputated. Members of their family died that week. They lost their home. How you doing? I'm blessed, brother. I'm blessed. Wow, I'd hate to see you when you're not because you're in a bad state of mind right now, right? Peter says, you're blessed. You're blessed when you suffer for the name of Christ. Now, this is a different understanding of what it means to be blessed. Because we hear people say this all the time. God wants you blessed. And we say, yeah. Scripture says, though, God wants you blessed. And that means you're going to suffer. And we're like, "Ah, what? (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. What? Yeah, man, God wants you blessed. Yeah, that means you're going to suffer. What? What? That doesn't make sense. But Peter says, don't be surprised. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. It's basically saying, like, don't say you're being blessed because you did something stupid. Like, you break the law. How are you doing? I'm blessed, man. I'm going to jail. I'm suffering. No, you're going to jail because you're an idiot. It has nothing to do with God at all. You just made a bad mistake. You broke a car, and you're now going to jail for it, right? That has nothing to do with Jesus. There's no glory in that. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. How often do we actually hide our suffering from our brothers and sisters? Because we're ashamed of it. Like we had anything to do with it to begin with. Many of us have teenagers, and you, you, you suffer, and this is going to sound funny, I don't mean it to be, but you suffer silently, a lot of you, dealing with your students, your children, maybe they've graduated on out of your house, but you suffer with decisions that they've made 
They part ways with your family. But you refuse to tell anybody because you're ashamed. You feel me? God says, no, no, no. That's an opportunity for, for me to manifest myself in you, for you to be blessed. We need to share those things. This is why things like, this is why our groups are so important. This is why sea life groups are so vital to us. This is where we share our sufferings with one another. Think it's going to happen on a Sunday morning? No, nope, you're just going to get to be blessed. How you doing? I'm blessed, man. That's all you got time for in the morning. That's it. I mean, really, who wants to go beyond that? Right? You haven't even had your cup of coffee. You're not going to delve into like the, the major things that are going on in your life. No one wants to do that. I don't want to be around you in the morning like that. Nobody else does either. So just don't do it, right? It's in a sea life group. It's in a small group where you sit down. How's everybody doing? Well, you know, I was thinking about it this week. I'm going through this. I'm going through this. I'm going through this. Well, let me pray for you. You talk about it. It's an opportunity for God to be known. We know God. When we share in God's love, when we share in God's grace, and when we share in God's suffering. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We must share in God's suffering. We must. This is what it means to know God. This is how we rely on him, church. This is how we become strong, and this is how we do great things. See, the problem is this. Everybody wants what Jesus had, but nobody wants to go through what he had to go through to get it. Everybody wants the greatness. Nobody wants the gauntlet. You know what a gauntlet is, right? Back in medieval days, you had some young buck that wanted to be a, a knight. You're like, That's great. Go ahead. Here's all these trainings. And then they would literally set up this thing called the gauntlet where they would have swinging axes and, and knives and swords and people just standing there with like, with, with, yeah, with huge swords and lances. And they would all stand apart. And your job as a person who was wanting to become a knight, you had to run the gauntlet. They gave you a stick. A stick. Are you serious? Hey, I want to run the gauntlet. What do I get? You get a stick. That guy gets a sword. You get a stick. That guy gets an axe. You get a stick. By the way, while you're doing this, we're all going to be standing up atop throwing potatoes, rocks, and dung at you. Okay, sign me up. That sounds great. Actually, as a guy, that does kind of sound awesome, really, to be honest with you, right? <coughs> the problem is, we all want the greatness, but we don't want the gauntlet. But what I'm telling you is, it's the gauntlet that produces the greatness. You feel me? It's the gauntlet that produces the greatness. James chapter 1 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I'm preaching as big as I can right now. You've got to help me out. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your what? Produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Man, I love that verse. Here's some insight into it. You can just insert the word faith every time you see the word steadfastness. The word steadfastness in Greek, which the New Testament was written in, that word there, steadfastness, is the word huponene. Let me hear you say huponé. There you go. Huponé. Turn to your neighbor and just say huponé. It's kind of fun if you get it. Like, turn to your other neighbor and be like huponé. Turn to the person behind you and be like huponé. There you go. That was weird. Hupone literally means loyalty to faith. It's another way to say faith. 
So let's read it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces faith. The gauntlet produces faith. The gauntlet produces greatness. So what a scripture means is that when we suffer, and don't miss this, God is capitalizing on the fact that we live in a broken world. And he allows us to have the opportunity to grow in our faith. Now, what I'm going to say next is very, very important. And I really want you to hear this because some of you have struggled for years with, with this. I need you to hear this. God isn't the one making you suffer. You say, you don't know my situation. I don't have to know your situation. Well, you don't know what I've, I don't have to know what you've done. I can tell you, God is not the one making you suffer. God isn't the one who gave your wife cancer. You're my church. God isn't the one who took your child's life. God isn't the one who made your husband leave you. Listen to me. We live in a broken world with sin. And these are the ramifications of what sin brings into the world. It brings sickness. It brings death. It brings decay. It brings, it brings things that rot and die. Death. That is not God. God did not bring that. In fact, God says he sent his son into the world to bring life into the world. God is in the business of resurrecting dead things, not killing things, not putting sickness into things. That's not God. And don't put that on God. However, God will use the opportunities of suffering that you are going through because of this world to make you better. Also, I would like to say this. God isn't in the business of punishing you either. I think for some of us, we have this idea that, well, I failed, I have fallen, God's going to punish me now. No, no, he's not. God's not going to punish you. Do you know why? Because Jesus has already been punished for you. Now get that in you and understand that. God is not angry at you. God is not mad at you. God is not punishing you. God is not standing up there waiting to walk, waiting for you to trip up and fall so that he can come down with his proverbial whip and hit you down. God has already punished Jesus Christ in your place as a substitutionary atonement, as a propitiation for you. Your, your sins, when you accept Christ, your sins, the sins you have come into, out of, the sins you are in now, and all the sins that you will ever sin are all forgiven the moment that you accept Christ. You feel me? They're forgiven. So how could God punish you for something that's already been forgiven? He already punished Jesus in your place. Stop thinking that God is out to get you and that he is punishing you. That will completely annihilate the, uh, annihilate the whole health and sickness theology that is rampant in this world and plays mind games against people who are hurting. You want to be filled? Give more money and God will heal you. 
That's from the pits of hell. That is not in scripture because God already loves you. It doesn't matter the amount of money that you give towards God. If you accepted Christ, he's not punishing you. It's sin in this world. Understand that? God will, however, capitalize on opportunities to grow your faith. 2 Corinthians says this, 12 verse 9. His strength is perfected in our weaknesses. His strength is perfected in my weakness. Just think about that verse for a second. His strength is perfected in our weakness. Because when I am weak, he is what? Strong. When I am weak, when I cannot do it, God can. He is strong. Well, uh, to be pretty honest with you here, Pastor, you know, I, uh, it doesn't sound very fun to me. This just does not sound fun to me at all. I gotta be. This sounds awful, to be honest with you. You're not really doing a good job of selling me Jesus here. I, uh, I gave a little bit of money earlier. I expected a little bit of a better return. <laughs> I thought that you said God was happy and God was good. Basically, Jesus is a lollipop salesman. Wears the beauty sash and floats from place to place and grants children wishes, right? No, that's Santa Claus, right? I thought you said that God was full of grace. He is. He is. What I'm telling you is this, friend. The very reason that you even breathe right now is because of the grace of God. The very reason that you woke up this morning is because of the grace of God. The very reason that you even walked out of your door this morning, got into your car this morning, made it here alive, worshiped the name of Jesus Christ, and are hearing the word of God has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the grace of Jesus Christ. So it is all about the grace of Jesus Christ. It is all about his grace. If grace, though, is the understanding that God came to man, then faith is the understanding that man must believe in God. And so, yes, it begins with grace. We are saved by grace. But then we're saved by grace through what? Through faith. We're saved through grace. We're saved by grace through faith. I guess if you could say it like this, grace is what sets you free, but faith is what keeps you free. Oh, that's good. That's good. Grace is what sets you free, but faith is what keeps you free. And too many of you have only ever bought into the grace of Jesus Christ, and you've never bought into the faith of Jesus Christ. So you get free, but then you get chained. You get free, and then you fall down. You get free, and then you get pulled back into jail. And you're like, where's God? He's failed me. No, my friend, you have never experienced the saving faith that comes from knowing God. You've only ever known his grace. You've never known his faith. And I'll tell you this, we as people who will never even believe in Jesus can experience what's called common grace. Because it's not only you that woke up this morning. It's the atheist who woke up this morning because of the grace of God. It's the sun that rose this morning to cover the entire world 
People who fill their, their lungs and their mouths with words that are obtuse to the things of God, where God says, I will still allow them to feel my common grace. But my friends, there's going to be a day and a time when God's common grace is pulled from this world. And you say, I don't want God. And God says, then I will allow you to live without me, which means my grace, which means all love, which means all hope, which means all security, which means all faith which means all trust, all justice, all goodness pulled. See, there are none of those things without God. But because of God, we experience those things, even to those who don't ever acknowledge the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior. There will come a day when that will end. And grace without faith is like a gift that you've been given that remains unopened. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. And it's a good gift from God. You had nothing to do with getting this gift. You have everything to do with opening it and walking in it and living in it. You know, in closing, say this. And as soon as I say, in closing, that's strategic because that activates a lot of people to listen again. In closing, I'll say this. For many years, I've struggled with seeing friends accept Christ and then fall away from faith. For years I've spoken at rallies and churches and youth groups and camps. I've seen hands raised to follow Jesus. And I've been frustrated over time with people who fall away. And I often question, are we preaching the message of Jesus wrong? Are we making it too easy to come to Christ? <laughs> Isn't that a funny way to think of it? Maybe we should make people like get down and grind through glass, like crawl there, like military style, and be like, Okay, now you proved you want Jesus, right? I don't think that's the answer. I just think for many people, they're infatuated with the grace, but they never commit to the faith. And if the grace is what sets you free, the faith is what keeps you free. from part one of our series, Do Great Things at Covenant Church. We hope you've been encouraged by what you've heard today. If you need prayer or just want to tell us your story, please reach out to us at mystory@covenantchurch.us and connect with us on social media at facebook.com slash to seek and save and twitter.com slash to seek and save.